From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Josh Messner. One of my favorite things about teaching at UW is uh, every morning walking up Bascom Hill to North Hall. There was also something about this department that was really wonderful. I felt like I was joining a place where the kind of work that I did would be valued and respected. People were pleasant and thoughtful and really intellectually engaged. In those instances, I'm always reading the Badgers. This, 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 this is 1050 Bascom. Today on the podcast, we're happy to have Professor Ryan Owens. Professor Owens is a born and bred Scani. He has a political science degree from the University of Wisconsin and a law degree from UW-Madison's law school. Professor Owens earned his PhD in poli-sci at Washington University in St. Louis. Professor Owens has won multiple awards for teaching and research throughout his career and has published several books and many articles in highly regarded academic journals and law reviews. He's actually currently the director of the Tommy Thompson Center on Public Leadership as well. We're excited to have Ryan on the podcast today to talk about his interests in politics, law, and of course, the Supreme Court. So thanks for being here today, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cool. So we'll dive in, and we usually want to start with faculty at a young age. So... Let's start with where you're from. What did Ryan Owens look like in high school? <laughs> well, I had a mullet. Let's, yes. let's just get that out yes. of the way. You know, okay. uh, business in the front, party in the back. Of course. You know, I, I, I grew up in um, north central Wisconsin around the Wausau area. Cronenwetter okay. uh, is where I lived. Okay. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, you know, I came down here. Um, I graduated 1994 from high school. Then I was here 94 to 98. Okay. And as you said, then from 98 to 01, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting being a professor at a place where you were as an undergraduate. Yeah. You know, okay. I teach okay. in some of the same classrooms where I was as an That's undergrad. Cool. And, uh, you know, sometimes fell asleep in those classes. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I was younger, I played a lot of soccer. In fact, I had kind of a spot uh, on the UW soccer team. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So I so the summer I graduated from high school, uh, I played on the Badger State games with a bunch of folks on the UW soccer team. Okay. And yeah, I told them that I was going to try out and everything. And, yeah. and, you know, the captain of the team said, hey, you've got a spot here. Don't worry about okay. it. You know, you've done a great job. Yeah, yeah. And I'll never forget this. I was still, at the time, I was dating a girl who was a year younger than me in okay. high school. And the day- With the mullet, she was still dating you? Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, cool, cool. E- even with the mullet. Wow. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, it yeah. must have been just like raw charisma, <laughs> I, I think, think so. Josh. Um, but uh, I, I remember I woke up one morning when the when the first uh, practice or trials were, were going to go on and uh, the alarm went off and I rolled over and looked at it and I just turned the clock off no. and I said, <laughs> I said, you know, if, if, if I play soccer for the UW, I won't ever get back and see her, you know, because that was so important. Yeah. So I didn't wow. play. And they won the national championship that year. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. It's fine. But, you know, of course, we broke up three months okay. later yeah, because was you know, it was not true love, however. Okay. So did you have, obviously, poli-sci now, did you have any interest in, in political science when you were that age? Or was it you discovered this later in undergrad or maybe prior or after undergrad? Yeah, not not so much. I mean, look, I benefited from some pretty good classes in high school. Oh, okay. I had a class on criminal justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spent a lot of time talking about, um, you know, civil rights and liberties. I had a class on, um, you know, the third world. I had a class on Russia. Uh, a lot of different classes that you wouldn't get, social science classes that you wouldn't get at many mm-hmm. high schools. Mm-hmm. And so I really found myself becoming attracted to those kinds of topics. And then 
then when I came down here, um, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, my freshman year, I had a class on world history, anthropology, religious studies, and astronomy. Okay, wow. And it doesn't get much broader than yeah. that, right? But, you know, I had a class with Professor John Sharpless, mm. and Sharpless was amazing. He was, uh, he was cool. just a hell of a good teacher. And what I liked about his teaching style was he introduced a lot of humor along mm. with what he taught, and mm-hmm. it had a way of captivating students. And I, I've tried to incorporate that in with my classes because I found it to be particularly useful. I'm assuming that you didn't declare poli-sci right away as an undergrad. After this class, maybe you then started to think about poli-sci and then think about law school as well. When did that yeah. come into the picture? Well, so I declared, I think, either my sophomore I think it was my sophomore year, okay. and, and I, was a, I was a double major in history and okay. political science. I mm-hmm. really, really liked, and I still do, uh, studying the, the founding era, mm-hmm. constitutional cool. history, that, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Law school, I, yeah, I think that was kind of on my horizon most of the time. Um, you know, early on, actually, you know, my junior year and then into my senior year, I actually thought I was going to get more involved with politics, okay. and a law degree is yeah. always a stepping stone right. for that. So, uh, law school was kind of a, just the, the natural thing for me. Okay, you know, and I wound up uh, after my first year, I wound up working for Governor Thompson in mm-hmm. his um, extraditions office, and uh, I, I spent about six, seven, eight months doing that, and then I went over to the public service. Commission, and uh, I was a clerk there. We regulated the utilities in the state. Okay. Um, and after doing that for a little bit, then I kind of got a taste of practicing, and then I got into a private firm, and of course, then you know started making a little bit of money uh, mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I realized that hey, making money is actually kind of nice <laughs> too, right? So uh, I, I tended to kind of drift in the in that direction, and okay. you know, after yeah. a couple of years, yeah. decided I didn't really want to practice that that kind of law sure. any longer. So let's take a step back once. Sure. You went to UW Madison's law school, so you went to undergrad. Mm-hmm. on this campus, and then you went to UW's law school. On this camp- What was that transition or lack of transition like going from UW to UW? I mean, it was pretty seamless. You know, a lot of the folks that were coming into the law school hadn't been to Madison before, mm-hmm. so I kind of knew all the places to go. Okay. Yeah, it was, a, it was a pretty seamless transition. I think I still had the same roommates that I had as an mm-hmm. undergraduate because they were all getting their PhDs and... Uh, Electrical engineering, no mechanical engineering. Okay. So yeah, yeah, you can imagine the parties we had with a bunch of engineers. Yeah. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, but uh, no, it, it was pretty seamless. Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that part of it. The the secret in my mind mm-hmm. to getting through law school successfully is to not overreact. So many students, they're just the type A personality. They feel as though they have to control everything. Mm-hmm. And they just don't step back and take a look at what's actually going on. And I think if you have the wherewithal to do that, you'll be perfectly fine mm-hmm. in law school. Mm-hmm. So you graduated from Washington University with a PhD. Uh, you have a Madison law degree. Mm-hmm. And then where? You went to Harvard, yep. right? So yep. tell us about that experience. That was great. I taught for three years out there in the government department. We, we got a chance to live uh, south of Boston on, on the South Shore. So mm-hmm. we lived about a block off of the ocean. Oh, very cool. Uh, yeah, I mean, my wife and I were talking about this. And you know, as an untenured faculty member, if you're going to Harvard or Yale or you know mm-hmm. any, any of the Ivies or whatever, that, that you're not going to get tenured there. They just tend not to tenure from within. They've changed that okay. a little bit over the last couple of years, but the rule has always been basically you're not getting tenure if you go there. Hmm. So we looked at it as having basically a seven-year postdoc type opportunity. Okay. And and my wife, Karen, looked at me and she said, well, Ryan, we're never likely going to have the opportunity to live out by the ocean again. Why don't we just live? Let's do it. Let's do it. So we did. And it was great. Um, you know, I went into the office a couple times a week to teach and for meetings. And otherwise I worked from home the rest of the time. It was great. You could hear the ocean from our house. You could smell it. Very cool. um, it was beautiful. 
let's talk about your academic interests more generally before diving into specific research. Do you remember a particular time in your academic career or a project that you were working on that got you thinking, you know, I really want to focus my research, my writing, my teaching about this? Well, I mean, I, I knew from early on in, in my graduate school career that I wanted to focus on the Supreme Court. Okay. I'd always been interested in the court. I mean, mm -hmm. I took a lot of classes with Don Downs here right. as an undergrad, mm -hmm. and then actually when I was in law school, took a few classes with him as well. Um, and I always liked those kinds of classes, judicial behavior, sort of political aspects of uh, of judicial decision making. So I knew sort of going back that, you know, if I was going to get the PhD in political science, I wanted it to focus on courts and sort of law and constitution. And I just, I got involved with some of the qu uh, quantitative aspects of it. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. Mm -hmm. I can actually see what's going on, mm -hmm. get my arms around it. And uh, I knew that that's what I wanted to do. And then, you know, I tell a lot of my students right now, when you are beginning your career, you kind of want to think about what your brand name is going to be. Okay. You want somebody to know, all right, I'm interested in doing Supreme Court agenda setting. Who does that? Oh, Owens does that, mm -hmm. right? And, and so I sort of thought, okay, that, that can be my brand name, yeah. agenda setting. So that's where I went. I did a lot of research at the Library of Congress. I got the justices' private papers, digitized them, hmm. was able to get a private side to the justices' behavior that nobody had seen before wow. or very few had seen before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was just sort of snowballing after that. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So let's talk about maybe three of your pieces before we dive farther into your research on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. First one being the conscientious justice, how Supreme Court justices' personalities influence the law, the high court, and the Constitution. And you wrote that with Ryan C. Black, Justin Wedeking, and Patrick Wolforth. Mm -hmm. So that sounds really interesting. What sorts of findings did you find in that book? Yeah. Well, I mean, I can sort of back it up a little bit and just ask, you know, why why did we look at this mm -hmm. topic? You know, as the title suggests, it involves personality traits. This one in particular is the trait of conscientiousness. As you look at Supreme Court scholarship, judicial behavior scholarship over the last 30, 40, 50 years or so, mm -hmm. it's basically the same stuff repeated over and over and over again. Justices have policy preferences and they act to effectuate those policy preferences. And, you know, I mean, the data clearly bear that out, but it's an old story. And frankly, it's not realistic. And by that, I mean, it doesn't tell the whole story. Justices clearly have policy preferences and, and act on them. Okay. But I think if you took a look at justices and judging just in general, it's not that simplistic. And what we wanted to do was bring a different theory to this and say, look, we, we, we've got to change as scholars. We've got to change what we're doing, what, mm -hmm. we're, what we think motivates justices. And this seems like low-hanging fruit. It just seems obvious yeah. that, that yeah. personality would influence justices. So this particular trait of conscientiousness focuses on things like your ability to work hard, to stay on task, to provide excellent work effort. You know, think about... Think about your your, your your typical Boy Scout, mm -hmm. right? And that's kind of what a conscientious person looks like yep. and acts like, I should say. So uh, we wanted to investigate whether justices who were more conscientious acted differently okay. than their less conscientious uh, colleagues. And they do. Hmm. Uh, they're more likely to cast certain kinds of votes at the agenda setting stage. Okay. They're less likely to try to overrule precedent. They're more likely to recuse in cases. You know, some of them, it, during some cases, they're more likely to try to change opinion drafts that their colleagues write. So, you know, it's an effort to, to try to figure out what it is that motivates these folks. And frankly, I think 
people, you know, presidents and senators who are thinking about who they want to put on the court need mm -hmm. to start thinking about this dynamic. Gotcha. If you have a court that's full of people who are highly conscientious justices, mm -hmm. they may mm -hmm. not overrule precedent. Right. Um, even precedent that needs to be overruled. Mm. Um, you know, so these are these are things that, you know, we, we want to get people to start thinking about a little bit more often than they do. I know a lot of undergrads and like myself specifically, and maybe even Americans more generally believe in this myth of legality or the notion that the Supreme Court is made up of these nine uber intelligent justices who can completely put aside their political and ideological biases in hearing these cases. But it sounds like that may not always be the case. Has that changed over the years or that these justices are able to or aren't able to do that as much? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to say. I mean, on the one hand, you don't want to trash this myth of legality too much because it's important that the public believes that it, it mm. lends legitimacy okay. to the institution. And it's not it, it, that's not to say that we need to lie to people mm -hmm. in order to keep mm -hmm. the legitimacy. That's not at all what I'm saying. There's a lot of truth to this notion that justices are there to try to seek you know, the, the objective outcome. I mean, yeah. think about it. You know what the modal outcome, the modal mm -hmm. coalitional yeah. outcome is yeah. on the Supreme Court? What? Unanimous. <laughs> right? It's unanimous. And yeah. when you think about that, if it's all about policy, what does that mean? It either means that the lower courts are so crazy that they couldn't convince one justice, or it means that there's something else going on in mm. a lot of these cases. You know, I think that myth of legality still exists, but for a lot of the major cases, you know, there's there's ambiguity in the law, and where you have ambiguity, other things can come in and mm -hmm. fill those cracks. Right, and that tends to be, in, uh, at least according to some of the scholarship on this policy. Hmm. Okay, so let's jump into another book that you wrote, Supreme Court Opinions and Their Audiences, uh, with the same co-authors. Mm -hmm. What was the impetus for that research, or what question were you trying to discover? by writing this book? Yeah, so two things on that book. One was we wanted to figure out what kind of external actors are out there that might influence the court you know, as justices write their opinions. Mm -hmm. So often we look at how justices vote or um, whether they affirm or deny, things like that. And those right. are all important to look at. But frankly, the most important thing that we get from the court um, is the opinion. Right. And that's really what sets right. policy that tells us what, what we can and what we can't do. And what we wanted to do is figure out whether there are, are certain actors out there who lead justices to write certain kinds of opinions versus others. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we found that when the court rules against a, a, a position that would be prevailing in the public. So when you're ruling against public opinion, they actually write clearer opinions hmm. to try to explain why right. they're behaving sure. the way they do. Okay. And so, you know, that's that's an effort on our part to try to position the court more broadly within um, the sort of external political environment. Mm -hmm. And we can see all kinds of things just like what I just told you, you yeah, know, um, yeah. solicitor general, separation of powers, things like that. They all motivate justices to write different kinds of okay. opinions. Okay. So that ties us into our final book that we'll discuss yep. briefly is mm -hmm. the solicitor general and the United States Supreme Court executive influence in judicial decisions. What's going on there? Yeah. So the literature showed that the uh, Solicitor General, or the SG, mm -hmm. uh, wins more than pretty much any other litigant. I mean, they, they the success rate there is amazing. But the problem was we could see all kinds of data to show that they were that the SG's office was successful, but we couldn't tell from those data whether the SG was influential. Mm. In other words, were they able to get justices to behave in ways they otherwise might not? Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And so we used a matching analysis there to try to basically uh, leverage whether or not the SG got the court to do things it otherwise might not do. Hmm. Um, and the data were pretty clear that um, that, that uh, the SG's office wins more than any other litigant, and they win in cases where these other folks wouldn't 
otherwise win. And, uh, you know, our takedown from it was at, uh, or takeaway from it was, it was basically uh, objectiveness, objectivity, excuse me, and professionalism, um, that the office has this credibility mm-hmm. built up that mm-hmm. justices rely on. And if you squander that, of course, yeah. You know, there goes your your credibility and sure. your success rate. Sure. So it was an interesting book to write. Um, yeah. Yeah. This really influential person. Why? Why are they there? Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So we talked a little bit about what justices act like or don't act like when they're on the court. How about the nomination process? I mean, right now it seems like it's more contentious and partisan than ever. I I feel like that's fair to say. Did it used to be this seemingly personal? Or, yeah, how has the nomination process been altered in yeah. recent years? Well, predominantly, it's it's media that, mm. that drives the, okay. the awfulness of it these yeah. days. Now, look, it's always been political. There's no question about it. I mean, the Supreme Court is a political institution. The nomination process is political. It's, it always has been. You know, early on, uh, Justice Rutledge, I mean, his nomination was shot down because of his views on the Jay Treaty. There have always been partisan politics involved with this. But things, you know, change over time. In in the 1950s, for the first time, you see nominees actually appearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee to provide testimony. Hmm. That was a first. Oh, wow. Um, okay. 1981, I believe it was, Sandra Day O'Connor was the first one to come and provide testimony in front of television. Mm-hmm. And as soon as TV got involved, mm-hmm. then everything okay. goes to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> okay. Uh, senators begin to grandstand. And, and the other thing to point out, of course, too, is that, um, uh, you know, after... After we move from states selecting U.S. senators to mm-hmm. senators being selected by um, dr- by direct election, yep. things change there as, as well because sure. then uh, senators now have this platform that uh, they can grandstand on. Okay. So you know, not surprisingly, it has to do with electoral incentives from from senators. And uh, again, I think everything has ramped up with media, and frankly, now in the era of social media, it's just awful. It, mm-hmm. it went from one degree of awfulness to the tenth degree of awfulness. Okay. You know, and then there's not much you can do to change that. Yeah, that's uh, right. I was going to ask is what can we do going forward? Well, you know, I, there, look, there are a few things that can be done. And I mean, there've been a lot of uh, arguments out there about how we need to have term limits for justices mm, okay. on the Supreme Court, maybe an age limit for justices. Uh, I think we need to seriously consider those as options because okay. you think about it right now, justices have the ability to retire strategically. They can leave when, um, Mm -hmm, you know, the president of the same party is around. And they stretch that out sometimes. And that seems to be a problem um, in terms of maybe the court's legitimacy, but certainly with the pressure it puts on the next nomination. So I think those are things that should get some serious consideration. Um, You know, I mean, less political, but if you look at justices who serve for a lifetime, I mean, I've got two research projects right now that focus on that. One is looking at mental decrepitude among Supreme Court justices. Okay. And we're working yeah. with a firm out in Arizona State that do they do clinical testing for uh, pharmaceutical companies. Wow. They listen to the words people speak and they read the transcripts to see if their vocabulary changes. Okay. And from that, they can detect early onset of dementia. They huh. can detect, you know, physical patterns with your speech that can, uh, you know, betoken some future problems that you may mm-hmm. have. So we're working with them to look at Supreme Court oral argument transcripts. Any initial findings right now? Uh, Stay tuned. Okay. Stay tuned. And then I also have a project on the effects of aging on judges. And the interesting thing here, preliminarily, it looks like, you know, we talked a little while ago about how the data seem to suggest that judges are ideological. Okay. But our data suggests that most of that seems to be coming from 
the judges who are a little bit older. Okay. And the the rationale we have, at least at this point, is um, if you take a look at how people think, um, how they uh, how they age cognitively, there is a decline over time. But there's two kinds of intelligence. There's something called crystallized intelligence and something called fluid intelligence. Crystallized intelligence is sort of your wisdom, right? There's things that you've learned, practical experience. And what we know is that increases until you reach the age of 50 or so, and then it remains, it plateaus until about the age of 70 hmm. or 75, at which point it declines. But your fluid intelligence peaks at around age 30, and that's the kind of intelligence you use to solve problems, to think abstractly, okay. uh, things like that, yeah. um, executive functioning. That increases till around age 30 or 40, and then it declines. Hmm. So what our perspective is on this, at least at this point, is that as your fluid intelligence decreases and your ability to think abstractly and solve problems diminishes, right. you rely on cognitive shortcuts and heuristics. Hmm. What's the most obvious one? Ideology. Right? So they, okay. they stop using uh, the, the sort of the problem solving skills and they begin to rely more heavily on ideology. And that seems to explain the patterns that we observe, at least so far. But th that's our next book project. And okay. we're in the process of collecting more data. On Do you that have right a psychologist now. that you work with on this? Not or yet. No. Is that something that would be useful to have? Yeah, think? I mean, we're working with folks. Yeah, okay. uh, the question is, do we want to add them on as another co-author? Yeah, okay. We've got gotcha. you know, three of us already. Mm -hmm. um, Are you all poli-sci guys? Or? Yeah, so it's me, Ryan Black, and uh, Patrick Wolverth okay. on this one. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had to do a deep dive into some of the um, you know, neuroscience stuff on this, and it's really fascinating. Um, and I think there's, that's another area where we can kind of push the boundaries of, yeah. of what yeah. the discipline tells yeah. us. Yeah. I had a question, uh, just jumping back to term limits. What is the process, I'm just thinking out loud here, what is the process of rolling out those term limits? And could that be a partisan battle? If, if the next Supreme Court justice that's nominated and put on the court, you have a term limit, but the other eight don't, uh, but right. you know, yeah, how does that unfold? Or I mean, is that totally out of your wheelhouse? No, no, no. I mean, the 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 plans that have been out there um, sort of build them in. They grandfather the folks who are currently in, sure, right, and then the next person, and and these are usually like eighteen year terms okay. or so. Uh, so it's not as though one person who had the term limit would probably leave the court before anybody else was on it. Okay. Tough to say. Maybe I mean Gorsuch, is, uh, Justice Gorsuch, is right. still pretty young, yeah. so he could he could outserve somebody with a term limit. But, uh, I mean, it would require a constitutional amendment to do it. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, you probably have better luck finding a three-legged ballerina than getting that through the Congress <laughs> yeah, and exactly. states today. So right. uh, so we'll see what happens okay. with that. Let's jump into maybe a current case that's, that's happening. The sixth sentence of the Constitution and the first one that specifically tells the government to do something, established census, the census. It's called for an actual enumeration every 10 years and since the end of slavery requires answers to just two questions how many people live in the united states and where do they live the answers to those questions are the basis for american democracy and i feel like a lot more uh, they determine for instance how many congressional seats are allocated and where hundreds of billions of dollars of federal money is eventually spent the supreme court is about to consider whether the trump administration may add a question about citizenship to the 2020 census short form questionnaire. Can you give us some background on this case, uh, the history, the politics? What do you think the court's going to decide? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting case with all kinds of uh, political ramifications. Um, ultimately, I think the court's going to side with, uh, with the president on mm -hmm. this one. Uh, it, it seems to me to be a pretty 
pretty square case. I, I don't I don't see this to be a, a, a hugely problematic constitutional issue from the court's perspective. Mm-hmm. If you go back and look at this, somewhere between like I think it was eight, from 1820 until 1950, there was a question about citizenship mm-hmm. in one form or another in the mm-hmm. census. And then starting in 1950, the uh, the government switched a little bit how they did this. Citizenship was not on all of the short forms, but it was on the long forms okay. that would go to about a sixth or so of the people who lived in the country. There was only one, only one uh, census in which there was no question about citizenship, and that was in 2010. Mm. So the cries here that this is something new and unique and, oh, the sky is falling is just crazy. Mm. It's been around for a very, very long time. In 2010, it was asked on the uh, American Community Survey. Okay. It turns out that a lot of people who answered the ACS survey mm-hmm. didn't answer it correctly. And the census found out about that basically by looking through some of their own administrative records mm-hmm. and sort of trying mm-hmm. to pair this against that. And so they decided that they were going to ask this question um, on on, on the census. And there are a couple of challenges to this. One was that uh, the Census uh, Bureau didn't clear it with Congress first. That seems to be false, just mm. patently false. Mm. Uh, uh, Wilbur Ross went before the Congress and talked about adding something on here, and that's all he needed to do under the terms of the statute. Okay. So it seems as though that fits. Um, you know, look, the, 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 the concern here, I think, from many is that um, a lot of illegal immigrants aren't going to answer this question. Exactly. Right. And uh, states like California and uh, Texas and New York and maybe Florida are going to lose out on some of the numbers. And if they lose out on the numbers, then they're going to lose congressional seats right. and seats in the Electoral College. Mm. Because remember, mm-hmm. Electoral College is members of Congress in yep. your vote. So that's, that's what this is about. But every single census, there are always people who claim that there's undercounting. Because of this outcome, so I mean, it just—if you—if you look at this from an objective position, you kind of stand back and you say, "Man, asking somebody whether they're a citizen, that being unconstitutional, hmm. just seems crazy." So I, we'll we'll see what happens. I mean, I can't imagine that the court is going to say that this violated the Constitution. I think because the court opted to hear this case before the circuit court decided. They know it's an important case. They know it has to be decided timely. Mm-hmm. They still have plenty of time to decide. Uh, if they can uh, resolve the dispute by the end of June, that'll be plenty of time for the Census Bureau okay. to print everything out. So I can't imagine that the court would rule against the government on this case. Okay. What is the need for the citizenship question in general? As in, if you respond to the survey and say where you live and you know figuring out how many people live in the United States, why does citizenship even need to be on there if the ballot quote unquote, will be counted if you answer any of the questions that are on the on the survey? Well, you know, I mean, first of all, that's a policy question. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the department, if they want to put that forward, that's up to them. Um, you know, I'm not here to, to support or oppose it one way or the other. But I, I it's a data point that you want to know. Okay. Uh, I mean, there are some estimates that we have about 10 million illegal immigrants in the country. But mm-hmm. if you actually look at other estimates, I heard this morning coming in, there was one estimate that put it at about 25 million people. Mm-hmm. And we don't know the answer to that question. Mm-hmm. I think this is an effort to try to find an answer to Mm -hmm. it. I don't know that it's a particularly good effort to find that answer. But, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty about it. And I think Mm -hmm. the question is we want to figure out who's being represented. Mm -hmm. I heard this morning on a a podcast that uh, California is actually seeing a mass exodus of citizens uh, from its state, that they're, hmm. that they're, net, they're actually losing more citizens than they're getting. And so some people have argued that California's increasing political representation in Congress is a function of illegal immigration. Hmm. You know, that's, 
that's an issue that has mm-hmm. to be discussed mm-hmm. and talked about. And I suspect that's one reason why the Commerce Department wanted to figure okay. this out. Okay. But, you know, you have to look at the administrative record to figure mm-hmm. out what really mm-hmm. motivated mm-hmm. them. That's my hunch. Yeah. So can I just touch a little bit about this course that you said you're going to teach with Dan Kappas? What is, yeah, what's going on behind that? Yeah. No, I think it's uh, it will be a fun course. It's an effort to sort of, uh, you know, make, make folks kind of see the big picture and in, in how we can work together on this. So I've got a handful of classes that I'm going to be teaching coming up. So next fall, I'm going to teach uh, administrative law. I'm also going to teach a class on the Founding Fathers. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, that, that'll be a fun class as well. The pendulum swings a lot in this country on things. Definitely. For a long time, we had uh, researchers who studied the founders just sort of kind of over-the-top enthusiastic. Then the pendulum swings the other way, and it's like, oh, we can't study them because they're just white male slaveholders. And, yeah. and you know, that's ridiculous yeah. as well. I mean, these people were incredibly influential sure. and brilliant, and we need to examine them realistically. So I've picked about eight or nine of the founding fathers, and we're going to do one week where we read biographies on them, kind of get a flavor of who they really were as mm-hmm. individuals. Mm-hmm. And then the following week, we'll talk about their views on government and the Constitution. Mm-hmm. And that's that's an effort to kind of bring us together to say, look, you know, you, you may not agree with this person on this issue. You may not like, you know, Washington because he was a slaveholder. But mm-hmm. my God, you know, the man could have been a king and he mm-hmm. walked away from mm-hmm. it all. Let's respect that and figure out how he was an effective leader. Yeah. So it's a way to bring people together to kind of think critically about the framers, what we can learn from them and be better leaders ourselves. And I think the class that I mentioned a moment ago mm-hmm. has that same philosophy in mind is, you know, how can we bring people together to examine topics from multiple perspectives? And I think that that's something that's sorely lacking right now, particularly with social media. Mm-hmm. We see people, um, you know, saying something and then they, they sort of run to their corners, you know, and it's just a boxing match. You know, liberals and conservatives both do it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, right now, I think uh, the Democrats are going through what Republicans went through about 10 years ago or five years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just sort of lis- listening to some of the worst parts of their of their uh, of their base, mm-hmm. and you know the middle tends to get left out in those discussions. Sure. So you know I think you know Democrats are going to have to have this crisis of you know who are we? What mm-hmm. do we stand for? Mm-hmm. Are we socialists or are we you know capitalists who 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 want to have a safety net? Conservatives have to go through the same thing. I mean, are yeah. they? Or Republicans, I mean, are they conservatives or are they sort of, you know, this new cultural, uh, you know, party? I, it, it's hard to pin down what it means to be a liberal and what it yeah, means to be a conservative definitely. any longer. Does Donald Trump represent, as former Indiana Governor Mitch Daniels asked, uh, an aberration or long term ongoing shift in what it means to be a Republican or what Republicans stand for? Is he an anomaly or a culmination of worrisome forces within the GOP and the right. Yeah, what what is what yeah. does it look like? Well, you know, a lot of times people say, "What's the end game?" You yeah. know, especially right, if they're right. asking the never Trumpers. You know, what what's the end game? And you're starting to see the never Trumpers now pushing back and say, "Well, what's your end game?" Mm-hmm. You know, what mm-hmm. if this is just a cult of personality around Donald Trump? What happens when yeah. Trump's no longer on the ballot? That's not clear. I mean, it's just not clear to me what what's going to happen. I think, you know, what the party needs is. For people to stand up and have ideas. You know, if you look at the most successful conservatives and Republicans over the last 30 years, it's been the ones who have been open-minded and energetic about solving problems. Uh, You look at a guy like Tommy Thompson, you Mm -hmm. look at, uh, you know, even Paul Ryan early on in his Mm -hmm. career, Mm -hmm. you know, and it tends to happen mostly with the executives, you know, the governors, they come in, they've got a plan for what they want to do to effectuate change. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you, you bring people on board through leadership. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's the beautiful thing about state politics is that it doesn't necessarily have to be wound up in national politics. Okay. You can have an awful discussion in national politics about Trump or about mm-hmm. Pelosi or mm-hmm. AOC or whatever. But at the state level, you can have somebody come out and say, look, we've got a real problem with transportation. We've yeah. got a real problem with criminal justice. Here's what we're going to do to mm-hmm. solve these problems. And I don't think that person has to be tied to these national problems. Okay. So if we are to see any sort of breakouts, I think... Um, on either side, frankly. Yeah, I mean, as the yeah. Democrats begin their shift to the left as well, it's going to be, I think, in these executive, um, you know, the governors who can come out and propose ideas and maybe work across lines to get things done where you're going to see the future of that party. Mm-hmm. So what has the last two years taught us about voters on the right that needs to inform any rebuilding? And with that, is the Republican Party the best vehicle through which to advance a conservative agenda? Well, I think so. I mean, which there, there's there's no alternative. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the answer is yes. And is it? I guess is a two party system the best system? Well, I, yeah. I mean, I think it, it it has served us well over time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think if you look at other countries with number of parties and proportional representation, there's there's significant problems with that. A two party system has worked well for us because for a long time we've had incentives for the parties to move to the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if that incentive is gone then I think there will be incentives for somebody else to join in Mm -hmm. uh, and try to pick off that middle. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have folks like Howard Schultz talking about running right now. Um, I know Bloomberg said that he's not going to, but for a while he was contemplating running. It it could be that we're primed now more than we ever have in the past for a third party. I still think that the two-party system is probably the best way to go with it. Mm. But again, you know, it's going to take policy entrepreneurs uh, to, to get in and sort of mix things up. I mean, I think... There are issues that the parties could run on that would pull in voters from the middle. It's going to require clever individuals to come in and run on those issues. Mm-hmm. And I think they can. So why don't we move into a little bit of teaching questions just to wrap up here. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I was curious about is you spoke on the Founding Fathers course that yep. you were teaching this spring. Yep. Um, my own personal curiosity, favorite Founding Father and why? Oh, uh, it's tough to say because they all have pretty significant contributions. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the one answer is going to be Washington, mm-hmm. just because of what he did, what he stood for, and the fact that he walked away from from it all. I mean, can you imagine somebody doing that today? <laughs> no, I, it's just crazy. Not a um, but I think for, for mine, my favorite founder has got to be probably John Marshall, okay. Chief Justice Marshall. You know, you read stories about this guy. He was an amazing person. He was incredibly intelligent, but such a people person. He loved being around people. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of my favorite, sto- one of my other favorite stories yeah. about him is he was in downtown Richmond one time and he was uh, looking to buy a turkey Mm -hmm. and there was a little kid there probably five years old who also was there to buy a turkey and he was embarrassed because his family wasn't wealthy enough to have a servant or a slave go there and Mm -hmm. purchase the turkey and carry it back Mm -hmm. to the house and he was very you know looked dishonored that he had to do it by himself so the chief justice of the United States (laughs) feels for this kid and he grabs the turkey and he carries it home with this kid and the kid had no idea who he was he was like thanks mister yeah and Marshall gets to the house and, and the, the boy's mom answers the door and she's just mortified yeah. that the chief justice <laughs> is the one who did it. But he didn't care. Yeah. You know, he, he was a people person. He he got on well with pretty much everybody. He was just an amazing person. I I, I you know, if you have a time machine you could go back and sort of meet certain mm-hmm. people. Cool. He would be one okay. for sure that I'd want to meet. Yeah, yeah. So just wrapping up here, some general questions. Can you tell us about the Tommy Thompson Center on Public Leadership? What are its goals, missions? You guys actually have a podcast coming out 
We do, soon, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. First, the goals and missions. Basically, mm-hmm. what we're trying to do is bring policymakers and academics together to tackle some of Wisconsin's biggest problems, mm-hmm. uh, really in the spirit of Tommy, which was, let's think big, let's get people together to work on solving a problem. Right. We don't have enough of that right now. It's, as we've talked about throughout this podcast, it's just, you know, back in the corners, people sniping on Twitter. We need actual results. Mm. So what we do is we pick a couple of topics each year, and um, that sort of sets our agenda for the year. We hold conferences on those issues. We dole out about five hundred thousand dollars in faculty grants Mm -hmm. and five hundred thousand dollars in speaker grants for Mm. people to come and speak across the entire uw system okay cool so why don't we head out to the bottom of bascom and check our gates (laughs) all right ryan we are now standing at the bottom of bascom hill it's not too busy out here so we won't get too much uh background audio but uh how about you and i take a walk up bascom sure what was the name of the street you grew up on kowalski what is the average diameter of a regulation basketball? 10 inches. Ooh, very close. 9.47. Favorite ice cream topping? Oreo cookies. Who would win in a fight, a gorilla or a shark? Is it in water or out of water? Yeah, that's your call. Gorilla. Out of water. Out of water. How many times uh, have humans walked on the moon? Ooh. 14. Ooh, close again. 12. Okay. What was the name of your best childhood friend, and what was your favorite activity to do? Uh, Andy McDonald, and uh, ride bikes or play Super Nintendo. Okay, there you go. Any particular game with Super Nintendo? Street Fighter 2, okay, man. Okay, of course, yeah. Favorite lunch spot in Madison? Oh, uh, Jimmy John's. Ooh, okay, just the super fast delivery? Dude, yes. Yeah, what's your go-to? Roast beef, roast, anything okay. with roast beef and mayo. Okay, okay. Any extras or, or takeoffs? Cookies. Oh, okay. Yeah. But you know, I'm diabetic, so I can't uh, go too hard okay. on the cookies. Okay. What brand of shoe are you currently wearing right now? Boston. <laughs> okay. What's a, what's like a weekend shoe for you? Are you going to New Balance or something a little better than that? You know, depends. If I'm working out, I'm rocking the Nikes. Okay. If I'm not working out, I'm probably wearing like the Doc Martens. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, What's the difference between a dirigible and a blimp? I'm going to say nothing. Ooh, actually, a dirigible has a rigid structure and a blimp does not. Oh. Black pen or a blue pen? Black. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, black pen for sure. Not red pen with all the markups on the writing? No, I'm told that that hurts people's feelings. So do you always go black when you're uh, editing papers? Black or pencil. Okay, okay. Sounds good. Um... So we are nearing the top of Bascom Hill. This question is a little bit more elaborate. You have one hour. What is the go-to three-course meal that you're going to make? And can you describe how to make those three recipes? Well, it's gonna be a medium steak with a nice sort of spicy rub on it. Okay. Be a Caesar salad. And, uh, you know, for dessert, eh, maybe a bowl of uh, cookies and cream ice cream with a, uh, a glass of Balvini scotch to top it all off. Oh, wow, that's quite elaborate. Is this by yourself or with your wife? Well, of course it'd be with my wife. Uh, okay, <laughs> sounds good. All right, Ryan, we are uh, now at the top of Bascom. Uh, the walk was great. Our gates look pretty good to me. Yeah, um, straight up and down. Yeah, yeah, that's Thinking right. clearly. Fantastic. All right, thanks for being on 1050 Bascom with us, and sure. we look forward to, uh, to hearing more from you and, and seeing what the podcast looks like. Great, sounds good. Cool. Thanks. Thanks.